Thanks, George. Good morning. Uh, it, it really is a joy to be here. It was 20 years ago, give or take maybe a few months. Uh, it, was in a, it was a summer between college semesters. Uh, I was a pastoral internship here. Uh, when I was in college, my parents started attending here. My sister started to date some boy here. Uh, so I needed to, uh, to get over here and see if this place was on the up and up. Uh, and so that was 20 years ago. I, I asked my father uh, what it was that I should speak, speak on when I was here. Here's what he wanted me to tell you. This is what he used to look like 30 years ago. That, that, that's what my dad wanted you to know. I don't know if that's a good thing, though. That was 20 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago, which might actually be the last time that I actually stood up here, uh, was to say I do to my wife, Nicole. Uh, she's here with me today. So it was in 2005. We just celebrated 10 years of marriage. We were married here by Pastor Don. Uh, and just a few days before that, we were baptized down in the Basic Creek by Pastor Don, which I think might have set the record for the coldest baptism uh, here at Westerlo. Pastor Don still has that etched in his memory. So that was, we just celebrated 10 years. We have two little ones who are here with us as well, Margot and Elgin, about to be five and three. It was shortly after um, Nicole and I were married, we started attending a church in Troy, New York, uh, which had just been planted and is being led by Ed Marcel, who might be familiar to some of you as well. In the same summer that I was a pastoral intern here, uh, Ed Marcel was actually ordained here as a church planter, and he went to plant King's Chapel shortly after that. Uh, it was in 2009 where I was ordained as a pastor uh, at Terra Nova. I went on full-time staff there in 2013, uh, and it has just been a joy to serve in that way, and God has proved himself faithful time and time again, uh, as he always does. It really is a joy to be here today, so I just want to share that and kind of just say, before I get into talking about Titus, thank you. Thank you to the people of this church who, who've played a part in my story all the way back to an internship 20 years ago. Uh, thank you for my family who continues to call this church home. Thank you for my wife, Nicole, who, who is a gift to me. It, she's, she's both a significant challenge, but also a steadfast comfort in my life. <laughs> That's just truth right there. Um, but she came to know Christ here as a teenager. She got baptized here. So thank you uh, on behalf of both of us. Uh, and thank you on behalf of a, a lot of people around the Capital District for, for whom this church has played a part. Uh, I was just looking through the list of guest speakers you've had this summer. Uh, guys like Lou, uh, Gian Paglia, and Ricky Ragone, uh, and Perry Jones, and, and, a, and a number of people here. I know I don't know the full list, and Ed Marcel and myself. In the last two decades, this church has put out a great number of good leaders who love Jesus and love the church, missionaries and pastors serving here uh, and around the world. So on behalf of all of them, if I could just say thank you, uh, I would like to do that before we get into the word today, um, just to say thank you for the, the steadfastness you guys have had in raising up followers of Christ and then sending them out. If I could pray for you in this church before we get into the word, I'd love to do that. So uh, can we just bow our heads and then I'll pray and then we'll jump into the text. Father, how good you are to your people and just the reminder that this place, your church, is the home for us and that we flourish here because your presence is here, your goodness is here, and that your son reigns and rules over this church. Father, we thank you for all of those good gifts that we so often uh, forget uh, and get distracted from. 
Father, I thank you for your steadfast hand of blessing upon this church and its people. And I pray that even in measure today, your goodness and greatness can be made known again for these people because you provide for them everything they need for life and godliness. Father, I pray as we enter your word that we, are, we have our eyes drawn up to see Christ freshly and newly again for who he is in our lives, our great God and Savior. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, I'm a guest speaker. I may go long, forgive me. But I was told you don't have Sunday school today, so we got some time. I want to begin with a question. How many people here desire something this morning? You can raise your hand. That's good. I, I like interaction. This is good. How many people, you, you either don't have something that you want, or you had something but you want more of it, or you have something that somebody else has. What, you desire something. You're, you're eager for it. Long for it will risk a lot for it, everything for it, perhaps. You desire it. Take all of those senses and those emotions and kind of pull them into what you think of desire this morning. Do you desire something? Do you desire someone? And it's okay. Don't get all churchy on me quite yet. This is fine to just kind of, I desire a Chipotle burrito this afternoon maybe even three. Okay, this is okay. Don't get too churchy yet. I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and say, what do you desire? Not yet, anyway. Maybe a little bit later. But I think I'm safe in presupposing this about us, everybody in this room today. We all desire something. Everybody. We all want something. It may be that I want a Chipotle burrito, but we're all more universal than we are unique. Right? To be human is to desire something. We know this experientially. Here's something else we know, too. That our desires at times can be both our best friend and our worst enemy. That, that history is ripe with, with humans who have desire, and that leads to great things and grievous things. That desire can be both, at the same time, a beautiful thing really dangerous thing if left unchecked. So the passage that, that KJ just read for, in Titus to us, it's one we're going to come back to. I promise I'll get to the passage in Titus, but we have a little bit to do before we get there. But in that passage, it has this sense throughout it of, of choosing good and not bad, godly versus ungodly. There's phrases in that, in that passage in Titus like, Say no to ungodliness and live self-controlled. Deny worldly passions. Be godly in this age. Be eager to do good, not wickedness. But the question I have is why? Why is it that we desire what we desire? And for some we may have these times when we actually do desire to do good. And for others, the pleasures of everything around us has a much stronger pull on our hearts and our affections and our time and our money, and that these things are more attractive than self-control and godliness and purification. And the question I have is, why is that? So, 
The journey I want to take today is to explore this idea of human desire. I'm going to open up by giving you a spoiler alert. I love to do this. I'm going to give you the end of the sermon right now. Because honestly, if you left here with nothing else today, this is what I would want you to remember and just dwell upon. This is the big idea. We flourish as humans when we desire to dwell upon God's grace and delight in his glory. Our best, our greatest desire should be to dwell upon his grace and his glory. It's the end of the sermon in some sense. I still got a lot to say. But if you don't understand or believe that, that's okay. Hang with me, because honestly, if you're like me, when I asked you today what it was you desire, I'm going to bet the vast majority of us didn't have that as an answer. It probably was a burrito or a new car or a vacation or a new job that wasn't burdensome but enjoyable. But if, if my statement is true, that human flourishing is greatest, that we have our best life, when we desire to dwell on his grace and delight in his glory, if that's true, then why don't we desire that? Why is it we get so much else and get so distracted by so much else and so many other things? So here's what I want to work through in greater depth, four points for you to walk through today. I want to take the idea of desire, and I want to go back to the beginning figure out where this came from and what it is. I want to talk about the brokenness of our desire. I want to talk about the redeemer of our desire. And then I want to talk about the reorientation of our redeemed desires. All right? All right, so let's start by going back to the start. I promise I'll get to Titus. I really will. But we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to get a, to get a sense of the start here. What we've already established is that experientially, we know that it is universal for all of us to have desires. And it's universal to want satisfaction of those desires. So where did all this come from? Simply, it's divine design as to how we're created. That God designed us with desire and that God designed us that we must depend on something outside of ourselves for satisfaction of those desires. We cannot satisfy ourselves. This is how our great God created and divinely designed us. And, and this is fundamental for us to believe and get our brains around to keep moving forward with what I want today. But here's a little secret that so much of what we can learn about life is in Genesis 1 through 3, right in the beginning of the Bible, because those chapters reveal to us all that was meant to be when it was good and right. Genesis 1 through 3 is before there was ever a need for the gospel of salvation, meaning that we needed to be saved and restored from our desires. Before we needed that, gospel one, or Genesis 1 through 3 is the gospel of satisfaction. The good news that human desires, that the desires of mankind were satisfied, fully satisfied, completely satisfied. And it reveals to us what the source of and the fulfillment of those human desires was. God's presence himself, that he created us for him. 
And embedded in Genesis 1 through 3 is a relationship of dependence and provision. That we depended on God to provide our satisfaction. And that was walking with him, working for him, worshiping him. And all of that was called good and done. It was the good news of human satisfaction that we dwelt with him and that we delighted in him. The beginning. But it was lost. You get three chapters into the Bible, which is like this thick, and we see and we encounter what went wrong, how the gospel of satisfaction was broken. Now, most likely, I know that most people in this room probably know this story, that Eve was deceived, she ate the forbidden fruit, and so did Adam. If the beginning was that we're divinely designed to desire and depend upon God, the brokenness is that we are deceived to depend upon ourselves for the satisfaction of our desires. There's so much more going on in Genesis 3 than just taking a bite of an apple. I mean, get underneath the surface of this a little bit. So Genesis 3 tells us this about the apple. It's obviously more than just hangry, the first example of hangry in history. It tells us that the apple was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. You see, Adam and Eve's desire here deceived them. Until this point, their desires were full from dwelling with and delighting on God. But for them, the apple appeared better. There's a disbelief here that God, is, that God himself is actually enough. That, that God might be keeping something back from them, holding something back better. That maybe there's a better way, a more fulfilling way, a shorter way. I, I don't need God. In Genesis 3, God in his holiness would have been just to end the lives of Adam and Eve right here. And that's sin but we have the first appearing of God's grace right in Genesis 3 as well. That his mercy is right in the beginning of the story, that though Adam and Eve deserved death for this, God didn't kill them. Grace was imparted to them. He removed them from the garden to live with the consequences of their sin. And for the rest of their life, for all of our lives, we are left with this consequence that we no longer, mankind no longer innately dwells with God and no longer directly sees his glory. That which we were made to desire, that which fully satisfies our longings, we lost. Our lives are now spent roaming aimlessly about trying to find the satisfaction of our desires. So let me try to, to, try to just tie this up uh, and to keep building so that we can get on. Is that God created and designed humans with desires that were to be met with delight in his glory and dwelling with him. We tasted that satisfaction, but we also traded that for a shiny, passing, and fleeting temptation. And this, at its core, explains our lives, that we're no different than Adam and Eve, that, that we delight in satisfying our own desires rather than trusting God to satisfy our desires. That, that we desire to depend upon and declare our own glory, not find delight in God's glory. Now, 
I think it'd be helpful for us to kind of unpack the word glory a little bit, just so we have an understanding of what it is we're talking about when we say glory. So there's a number of ways you can think about this. Glory could be bright radiance. It could be weightiness, uh, holiness. It could be majesty. And and part of the, the difficulty we have with a word like glory is that in our own human comprehension, we can't really fully understand and appreciate glory and what it is with God. But I want us to try and have a working definition of glory. And I found this recently by a pastor in Chicago named James McDonald. You might be familiar with his radio program, Walk in the Word. Uh, here's, here's how he tries to bring glory into our minds for understanding. I like this. Glory is the manifestation of God's reality. Glory is the manifestation of God's reality. And at first glance, that's a pretty simple definition. But if you dig into it, it's as deep and as endless as God is himself. That glory is the manifestation of his reality. All of him. All of his fullness. All of his holiness. All of his grace. All of these things. Glory is the manifestation of these things. Like, like light and heat are the manifestations of the sun. Glory is the manifestation of God's reality. And if that's true, follow this. This is important for us to follow. If that's true, glory is the manifestation of his reality, then when we give God glory, what it is that we are doing is depending upon him for the satisfaction of our desires. That we are ascribing to him worth, making his reality real in our lives. On the contrary, when we don't do that, we are robbing God's glory, when we're depending on anything else, especially ourselves, for the satisfaction of our desires. And the truth is, we're never going to experience the full joy, delight in God's glory if we continue to pretend that glory is ours for the taking. We just won't. We are made to give him glory, not rob his glory And giving God's glory manifests his reality, not robbing his glory. If we do rob his glory by making ourselves greater, we're actually denying his sufficiency or denying his existence. Let's keep tying this together. We're divinely designed to depend upon God for the satisfaction of our desires. But when we're deceived to depend upon ourselves, Adam and Eve first, us daily, We were meant to dwell with God and delight in his glory, but we can't any longer because of this brokenness. If I left here, that's pretty hopeless. So what now? What does that mean for us? Did God wash his hands and leave us to our own desires, to our own devices? No. And this is where we don't just need to hear the gospel of satisfaction, we also need to hear the gospel of salvation. Salvation uh, simply being restoring that which we had lost, what should be. We lost our desires being rooted, created by, found in, satisfied in God. And we can have those desires restored, saved. And we need to hear this message. And here's where Paul comes with the book of Titus writing to Titus, writing to us, and delivering the good news that our desires can be redeemed and restored. Because it's been a few minutes, I actually want to reread the passage that was in Titus. 
now that we kind of have a little bit of a, a background to enter into with. So back in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is the good news, the great news, that what was lost is now able to be restored. And it teaches us to say no. It, it changes, it redeems, it reorients our desires. It, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, that, our blessed hope, that which our souls really long for and desire. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Do we see what Paul embeds in here? These things are critical to pull out. What is meant to change, redeem, restore, and reorient our desires? The grace of God that has brought you salvation and the glory of God to come in Jesus Christ. You want your, you want your desires satisfied? You want life to the fullest? Paul tells Titus, he tells us, Dwell on his grace, delight in his glory. Simple. But not simplistic. We have now before us a lifelong journey of trying to figure out how to do this. Day in and day out, what does this look like? A few things I want to get squared away. Make sure we're on the same page with here or something in Titus. That Paul tells us something about the grace and the glory of God. So I want us to see two things. First, who is it? Who is the character that reveals to us the grace and the glory of God? You can speak back. Who is it that Paul gives us in this passage? Jesus Christ, thank you. Our great God and Savior. See, see, we have to get this right. This has to be a starting place for us that we cannot find God's grace anywhere but in Jesus Christ. And we will not Find satisfying glory, God's glory, anywhere else but Jesus Christ. We have to get this right, that he appeared revealing the fullness of God's grace, offering salvation to all people, redeeming and restoring a right place, a dwelling with God, that which we all need desperately. And he will reappear, come again, bringing with him all the fullness of God's glory that will drop us to our knees. And so doing, completely satisfy us. Faith in this is monumentally critical. That this is the better story, the truer story than anything else you hear or see, that you cannot save and redeem and fulfill your own desires. But Jesus Christ can. In fact, he has. And that God has divinely designed you to delight in him, 
most specifically the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? We have to get there by faith, seeing Christ as the redeemer of our desires, and we have to reorient our desires to him and for him. Now, if we believe that, what next? So here's the second thing I want us to see that Paul gives us in Titus. We have to see Christ as the one who redeems and satisfies our desires. But the second thing I want us to pull out and see in this passage is the tension of time that Paul gives us in the story. He says to us that the grace of God has appeared, past tense, and the glory of Christ will appear, future tense. Where are we in this story? Where do we find ourselves in that timeline? Right smack in the middle. Right in the middle of this, that Christ has appeared, bringing the grace of his salvation, but he has not yet appeared, bringing with him all of the fullness of God's glory and his eternal rule. We are right in the middle. And Paul opens our eyes here to see that it is the grace of God pushing us from behind, and it's the glory of God that's pulling us forward out in front of us that should reorient our desires from worldly things to godly things. It's what the writer of Colossians tells us when he says to us, set your mind on the things that are above and before you, not on the things that have kept you back, both behind you and below you, that which you've been saved from. But honestly, here's where the rubber hits the road in our lives day in and day out. That, that we may profess faith in Christ and we still struggle with the day-to-day fleshly, worldly desires, that we're redeemed from these things, yet we still feel the weight of their attraction on us, on our broken desires. They still hold a greater pull on our affection than the treasures that Christ has for us to come. And this might frustrate us, that we still find ourselves in this struggle. That in, in Christ, see, the truth is that we aren't defined by our broken desires anymore, but yet we continue to battle them. I think Paul gives us a really encouraging word here that that should buoy our souls if we can lay claim to this and really grab hold of what this means. He uses the phrase right in the beginning, it, meaning the grace of God, teaches us to say no. That the grace of Christ and his glory teach us to say no. Teaches us. That the grace of God teaches that we are being taught by the grace of God in the past, presently in our lives. Let me ask you a question. The first time you sang the ABCs with your mom, did you learn the alphabet? The first time you got behind the car, or behind the wheel of a car, did you learn to drive? Know it right away? Watch a football game, now you know how to play in the NFL? First day on the job, and now you know your job inside and out? No, of course not. We're taught these things by repetition. So will we say no to every temptation that comes our way after we experience the grace of God once? No, probably not. If you're like me, we're going to stumble on our desires until we're room temperature. 
but we continue to be taught by the grace of God. We need to continue to dwell in the grace of God. And here is where we need to get really super real in our lives. What does it look like to dwell in the grace of God? Not make it just a churchy phrase that we can all say, but what does it mean to know that, live that, to be taught by his grace? So we're going to do something. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take out a pen, piece of paper. I want you to write something down. Be honest with this question. What do you desire this morning? What do you want most in your life? What is it you really want, emotionally or physically, spiritually? Write it down. Take a minute. I'm going to be quiet here for a minute to allow you to write this down. What do you really want? Some things to help and consider as you think about that. You want more money? Do you want your spouse to love you? Do you want to look differently? Do you want people to think you're cool, wise, smart, funny? Do you want to be married? Be real. What is at the bottom of your heart that you really want? Do you want God to prove himself to you so you can actually have faith? The examples here on what you could be examining your heart for, I realize we may not get to in the time that we have. It's okay. They could be vast and varied. But take what you have written down. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to allow God's grace to saturate this desire. Here's what I mean. Ladies, especially young ladies and women. Do you, do you want to look like something else? Here's what that reveals. You are not content with how God has created you in his beauty. Here's the grace of God, 1 Peter 3, that he wants you to, to, to concern yourself not with how you adorn yourself on the outside, but the hidden person of your heart, adorn yourself with that because God finds that beautiful. 1 Peter 3. The grace, the grace upon grace that the great God of our universe has uniquely made you the way you are and that he wants your heart in all of its beauty to be on display. Dwell on that grace. Men, I share this just by way of how many times my wife and I experienced something like this in a pastoral setting. Do you desire for the satisfaction of sexual fulfillment inside or outside of marriage? We got to get real with this, people. Is that what you desire? 
If it is, you've been sold a Hollywood and cultural bill of lies. You've been deceived to elevate your need for sexual drive and intimacy to the point of need. Listen, physical intimacy, relational intimacy is a great gift from our God. It is his grace upon us that we have that. But fulfillment of our twisted desires is straight up deceptive. And destroys fulfilling relationship. The grace here is that Christ has saved you from those things and given you the power that the same power that He had to deny the temptations. How gracious of our God to give us that. Did you desire that God would do a miracle so that you could have faith to believe? That might sound like a really good desire. I think Christ says something about that to the religious leaders of his time who demanded more miracles so that they could have faith. Examine your heart with that desire. The grace that we've been given, the great grace, is that we have the word of God, which we're told is sufficient for all faith and godliness. What a great grace we've been given. Dwell on that grace. That's what we're talking about. Take your desires and take them to the Bible and have faith in the grace of God that he's given us in so many different ways. I could go on. Here's what I want to encourage you with. Whatever it is that you wrote down, take it home to your spouse. Have a conversation. Small group, trusted friend, whatever it might be. Ask them to help you examine that. Bring it to Scripture, the truth of God. Let it speak grace to you. And as you have conversations, listen to them. We can be so deceived by our desires. Allow the body of Christ to share in that with you. Frame it with the truth and the grace of God. Train yourself to examine your desires in the light of his grace. His grace is a greater reality than the pressure of your desires. And we need to teach ourselves that every single day because the truth is none of us know the ABCs of grace yet. We just don't. But we strive to set our minds to teach our hearts this by his grace. Now here's another question, why? Why? Not just because we're seeking to deny ourselves pleasure. Actually, joy and enjoyment and good gifts are, are gracious gifts from our Father. From, but the fulfillment of these things is how we've been designed. But we deny ourselves some of these worldly pleasures because why? Because we have a faith that a greater gift is coming. The glory of Christ that will appear. This is why Paul calls our eyes not just to the past appearance of his grace or the daily struggle of denying yourselves, But he reminds us, lift up your eyes. We're not just stuck staring into the past or getting lost into the quagmire of our own present situations and desires, but we have something pulling us forward that's better than what we have right now. And that is what is to keep you preserving to the end. It's why we keep denying the quick fixes of our worldly passions because we have something better ahead of us. We wait for the blessed hope, the glory of Christ. We persevere with patience, training ourselves in grace, by faith, so that we can eventually enjoy the greatest thing, that which we were made for, God's glory. Not our glory. His glory is what will satisfy. We wait upon the Lord for satisfaction. We wait upon the better thing to come, not the shiny, flashy, fleeting temptation that's before us 
ever present before us. And it's so compelling to our flesh now. But we wait for something better, more satisfying. Remember the glory of God's presence. That was the great good news of the gospel of satisfaction right in the beginning, before the fall. That is coming back for us. It's the grace of God that sustains us until then and gives us patience. It's the glory that's more satisfying than anything in the world that pulls us forward. Now, do you believe that? It's critical. That his future glory is better than your current temptation. Do you believe that? Do you believe you will be most satisfied, have the most joy in God, or are you like Adam and Eve? You feel the need to satisfy your own longings in your own time, in your own way, for your own glory. For me and my faith journey in believing this, I just want to give you a piece of scripture that I come back to a lot. It's critical for me because I far too often find myself taking bites of deceptive apples. It's Psalm 145. He teaches me to say yes to the greater thing at the expense of lesser things. Psalm 145, here's a couple of things that are embedded in that psalm I just want to repeat to you. The eyes of all look to you. This is speaking of God. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He's kind in all of his works. He's faithful in all of his words. That's what, some of the stuff that Psalm 145 tells us. And saying we trust that and believe that and living it out is not an easy journey, but it is one that grace daily teaches us and it is one that glory pulls us forward. And it's critical for us to teach ourselves this day in and day out. And it's not just critical for us because here's another thing we need to get to. This isn't just about us. We are not the central pieces of this story. We can't be too myopic and think his grace is just for me and his glory is for me. Paul reminds us in verse 11 to teach ourselves to dwell on his grace. And then in verse 15, he commends to Titus, really, he commends to anyone who believes this message of Christ, this is what you are to teach. Declare these things, that his grace and his glory saves all men and women. This story is not about us. It's about his glory, that we rely on him to redeem and purify us. It is for him that we are his people. He gets the glory. See, we get joy when he gets glory. He gets glory when we depend on him for all things. The satisfaction of our desires. And what we need to stop being is Adam, silent when the world around us is looking for something better and away from God. And we need to start speaking up that the greater thing is the treasure of Christ. You see, fundamental to our lives is this, is that his glory is satisfying to all men and women. Fundamental to our meaning, our purpose in life, is that God actually needs vessels to demonstrate that truth, to declare to the world around us that his glory is better. Who are those vessels? Us people that he's redeemed and purified, people who've been trained by his grace and who patiently await his return, people who become eager or zealous for good works. 
our desires don't become anymore about self-satisfaction, but they reorient to display the grace and the glory of the Lord as full satisfaction. Five times in the book of Titus, Paul tells uh, Titus to insist on these things, using phrases like, this testimony is true, uh, or this teaching is trustworthy, excellent, or profitable. Five times Paul tells Titus. In verse 15 here, he says, these things you should teach. Teach everyone that they will flourish when they dwell on God's grace and delight in his glory, that they're both complete and our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be satisfied in him. Is that enough for you and for the world? And the answer is yes. Be zealous for this message, passionate, long for it, eager to be a part of it, risk for it. Desire this message both in your own life and for everybody around you. Paul ends the phrase in Titus with, don't let anyone despise you, which in the context of all of Titus is he's simply trying to convey this message that he's saying, let no one see you preaching this message and then not living it out. That don't live a life contrary to this. Six times throughout Titus, he's going to have phrases or ways of saying things that essentially mean make your words and your work line up. Your message and your mission sync up. And Paul regularly uses phrases like be above reproach and do not be disregarded. Paul knows what we all know. Hypocrisy kills our witness. That our message about God's grace and his glory are meaningless if we're not actually living that out and taking hold of it in our own lives. Being gracious and giving glory to him. If you preach and teach self-control, godliness, hope, patience, deny the passions of the flesh, wickedness, ungodliness. If that's our message, if that's what we're declaring to the world around us, our lives better manifest that because people who live and preach that, it brings glory to God. It makes his reality known. Right back to the definition of glory. Makes his reality real in everyday life. Gives him glory, gives us joy. Tie all this together. You read a passage like this in Titus and we feel the tension that we know is real in our lives about choosing good and not bad, godliness, not ungodliness, and we get a sense in our own lives that something is broken in our hearts, that we don't desire that which Paul commends to us. We don't don't desire this naturally. And we get back to the beginning and saw that Godly divinely designed us with desire, and he designed us to depend upon him for the satisfaction of those desires. But Adam and Eve chose a different path. They depended on themselves, not God. And like them, we regularly do the same thing. Shortchange God. Depending on our own ways to satisfy ourselves, we're deceived by our own desires, just like they were. God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He saves, redeems, restores us back to the place where we can be satisfied in him by dwelling upon his grace daily and delighting in his glory. And that trains us 
to reorient the satisfaction of our desires back to our designer, creator, Lord. It repurposes our lives, not to just dwell on his grace and delight in his glory, but to then declare that same message, truth, with our voices and with our lives. This is where I gave you at the beginning and the end. In Christ is the satisfaction of all human longing and desire. And we sing that, shout that, share that. We fundamentally need to believe and take hold of this, that we are made to dwell on Christ's grace, dwell on his glory, and declare that to the world around us for his glory and our greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, even as I stand here behind a pulpit with words that say, Sir, we want to see Jesus, I pray that's true today. I pray the things that may distract us from your goodness, your greatness, your glory, are distanced from our hearts by your grace. Whatever ways, Lord, you know them fully, we need to depend upon and rely upon you more fully. I pray that your spirit does that work in our hearts, in our conversations, and in our relationships. Father, I pray we are a people who find our greatest satisfaction in you, and that is the greatest message of our hearts and our lips. Thank you for allowing us to take part in your great story. Forgive us for defining ourselves apart from that story every time that we do. And by your grace and mercy and your great loving kindness, continue to secure us in your son. It's for his glory and great praise that we worship you and we submit to you. Amen.